You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Jay, you know what my favorite type of restaurant is? Yep. Restaurants that totally think out of the box. Like, I love having breakfast at dinner time, for instance, and I've always loved this. And so it was great reading Jeremy Fall's book, Falling Upwards. He's a restaurant guy, a nightclub guy, a bar guy, but also just started a record label, has worked with Jay-Z, Quincy Jones, CNN, been involved in the NFT space. But his first restaurant that he started in L.A., was a breakfast at dinner time restaurant that also was a bar slash nightclub slash whatever. And then he's expanded his creativity in all these different directions, which is inspirational. But this book that he just wrote, Falling Upwards, is all about him dealing with anxiety at the same time, this anxiety disorder, something that I can strongly relate to over the decades of my own career. And just really refreshing talking to him both about creativity, about food, about restaurants, about anxiety and how you deal with that. So here he is, Jeremy Fall, author of Falling Upwards and also the creator of so many restaurants and other creative ideas. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Yeah, really enjoyed uh, following up where it's really good. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I always schedule these things to finish right before the podcast starts. And I, I was just really enjoying it. I felt it was really well written. Did you just finish it like today? Yeah, I just finished it today. Oh, wow. That's a, I, that's a I, I pace these things because I do three podcasts a week. I pace my reading so that I know I'm going to finish the book the day of. That's awesome. By the way, one thing, Jeremy, I was totally psyched when I started reading the book and realized you're into my favorite type of food combination, specifically breakfast for dinner. I'm a huge breakfast for dinner fan. Absolutely. I mean, as am I. That was that was what started my career. Before we get into like the meat of your book, uh, why do you think people don't usually usually have do breakfast for dinner? It's like such a natural thing to have something sweet, you know, like pancakes or French toast or something, along with you know some savory stuff at dinner. Yeah. No. I th I think it's I think it's interesting. I think. Yeah, you know, and and there's probably a lot of history there where a lot of what American breakfasts are made of were actually, you know, influenced by Wall Street because you know all of those like oranges and all these different products were were essentially what Wall Street had the most 
backing in at the time. So this whole orange juice, glass of milk, you know, eggs and all these things reflect that. But to me, I think it's a very nostalgic, nostalgic meal. Maybe it's because we were, it was before we'd go to school in the morning or whatever it is. I think it's just like this very comforting morning, first meal of the day. You're the most energized. You know, people always say that dinners are are very social. I've always thought breakfasts were social because like when you meet someone for breakfast or I've had so many breakfast meetings, I've been insanely productive. It's like the first thing of the day, you're not tired. Um, you know, your, your brain hasn't done a million different things yet. So, so with that said, you know, I think, I think it's this very comforting thing and breakfast for dinner kind of feels like, you know, it's like a treat. Like maybe when we were kids, like it was something you didn't do. I don't know if there's some sort of forbidden thing about it. I'm not sure, but it seems like it's such a thing for everyone. Yeah. And you, but you would think though, like people always crash, for instance, after breakfast, if they have like, yeah, if you know, pancakes or heavy carbs, whereas if you eat like a heavy dinner, steak, you know, alcohol, the whole thing, you tend to not fall asleep after dinner, unless you eat dinner like many hours before sleep. So it would just seem in terms of our sleep cycles, dinner would be better at breakfast and breakfast would be better at dinner. But all aside from just the tastes and and so on. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of actual like cultures that their breakfasts are very savory forward and mimic things that we would have for dinner. Um, you know, for the traditional breakfast in the US is definitely like not the standard for everywhere, right? So uh so no, I've always thought that was interesting, but I'm glad that you're a fellow breakfast for dinner fan. So in your book, you were I was, you know, you started off with um kind of the pop-up what would you call it? Bar uh, uh, Genesis, yep. and you were only twenty three years old, uh, or you know, and you you approached this other club promoter that you worked with closely, Jared, to open that up. I think that was very inspirational in terms of like how you got your start. That people aren't just given opportunities; you have to kind of like reach out and really have ideas and and get your opportunity for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you could describe how how that happened and then Yeah, you know, people always ask me like the, the question I always get is how did you get your start? And I and I mean obviously if you trace it back to my really really young days, you know, I started as a busboy in a restaurant. I mean, I don't think there's a direct correlation to that like necessary where that's like a step you have to take. I mean, I learned a lot in terms of hospitality from like a, you know, a per- skill standpoint, but to me, it's like, I think the biggest thing that I attribute my success to that I just have never thought about is going for something. And I know that that seems like a little bit cliche, but I don't know if it's because I'm a sociopath or whatever it is, but I just, if I have an idea, I literally do it. Like I don't, I don't have a filter there. And I think that I don't know what that is. And maybe that that is attributed to mental illness or whatever it is. And I talked about, obviously, the book is a heavy mental health focused book. Right. But like, I've never, I've never not tried. Like, you know, the like last year, uh, actually, no, this year, so within the last year, I was like, you know what? I had never like really done art before. Or I've done a little bit of things, but I was just like, cool, I'm going to do this art piece. And I collaborated with CNN and dropped a, a, Nelson Mandela inspired piece for the anniversary of of his release from prison. And there was no question, and obviously I'm a creative person, like that's something I've known, but like there was no question that I could just be an artist and do that. And like a fine artist in that sense and did it. And 
piece actually did really well. And then that led to them wanting me to do something for a gun control campaign. Like, but I've never, there's never been an opportunity presented to me that I wanted to do that I was like, oh, I wish I could, but I can't. I mean, obviously, I can't be a heart surgeon, right? Or like there are limitations to that. But ultimately, you know, I wanted to be in restaurants. I just figured it out. I want to do this. I just figure it out. Like there's no option for me to not figure something out. And I think that the way my brain's wired, that I think that's what's really helped everything because a lot of times it's fear that's, you know, that stops us. I mean, fear stops us. And I think there's two other things that you must have some conceptual relationship with. One, of course, is failure because you don't reach out to do things as much as you do if you're also um, not willing to fail. Because most things that we attempt will fail if we attempt lots of things. I will fail more times in the rest of my life than I will succeed. That's for sure. It's like, but you know, it's funny. Like I've never... There was once a couple of times when I was younger, I was throwing these like all age events. It's kind of started in nightlife. I would get this venue, charge 20 bucks at the door. It was kids who were like 12 to 17, kind of like a better version of a school dance, right? And it was like this, and it's, it was a great idea. I still think it's actually, I mean, today is a little bit different, but um, you know, some people like it wasn't as successful as I thought. It 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 literally is one of the focus, but there's it's it mentioned in my book, it's in every interview I've done. But so in that sense, you know, if I look at that, that was a failure on paper from a revenue standpoint, from whatever, however you want to quantify it. But like, it was part of my story. I talk about it now. It's it's a good talking point that I've repurposed, right? And so, is it a failure? Like, I don't. I also think that maybe like my conception of failing is skewed, or it's just. And I'm not trying to say like I don't believe in it. Like I'm not trying to sound like a you know it's like a business book, but like, but I really I don't really think about it. You know, I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs very much focus on financial capital, and I focus on like personal achievement. So even if something is not a commercial, which by the way is good and bad, right? Because to a certain extent, like as a business person, like there needs to be some sort of a financial. Um, you know, success, right, for for businesses and supporting people and everything. But I think when I look at it, I'm like, you know, I look at so many things I've done that have built so much social capital, right? Like so many things over the years that I've done that may, I mean, if you look at, if you read my book, like the vast majority of things mentioned here, like didn't directly correlate to making money, like at all. But those stories and those things I've done allowed me to write a book and get published by one of the biggest publishers in the world. So it's how you look at it. No, I, I agree. I think, um, I almost think that's the danger of calling, of labeling oneself as an entrepreneur is that then you're contextualizing sec- success or failure in terms of money. Did your entrepreneurship succeed or fail? That means the did the business succeed financially or fail financially? And I always kind of think if you get, as, as you mentioned earlier, if you get a story out of it, if, you, if it becomes an experience that is a, tattoo on your life basically yeah. then that's a success so like this and 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 like you had social impact with that the mandela nft like that that's all those things are important as opposed to you're right i think we cut sometimes because money is a path to freedom we sometimes get just consumed by it as opposed to just putting it in its rightful place yeah i mean, I mean absolutely i mean if you look at if you look at forbes top right of the billionaires right like first of all is is well, depending on who is in the is Jeff Bezos today more successful than Elon Musk? 
tomorrow and more successful than Bill Gates the day after. Like, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know if success is measured at that point. Like, I think there comes a point where there are people that are, you know, you look at someone like Dan Gilbert, who's lower on the list, obviously still high up there. And he's done so many amazing. What a failure. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, He's done so many amazing things and revitalized Detroit and paid his employees during the pandemic. Like, that's pretty successful to me. Like, I, I don't know. There's people, and even going on a much more relatable side, like there are people who have net worths in the under $100,000 and I would say are just as successful as Jeff Bezos. Like, I don't think that that's the metric. It just, it depends how you quantify it. So once you look at success as like not, a, it's like essentially be able to carve your own path and make your own rules. I think the the measure is a lot easier to digest. Like I, I think it's a lot. It allows you to just take more risk, make smarter decisions, and not try to mimic someone else's path. Because essentially, that's how you're going to fail is if you try to do something someone else has. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. 
ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When you're doing this first thing that you did, you know, you approached this guy, Jared, he right away gave you this opportunity to do this pop-up bar above one of his clubs. Mm -hmm. And that first attempt at success though, and we're going to talk about your anxiety. It's something you and I share. Do you feel like that first attempt at breaking out of the box at making a name for yourself, were you a little more anxious there or did youth kind of fuel confidence? That's a great question. I mean, youth... Definitely now when I look back, I'm like, holy shit. Are we allowed to cuss on this? Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I was course. like, holy shit. Like we only cuss yeah, on I was going to say, have I, I need to catch up. But some of the things I'm like, I had more balls back then than I do now. <laughs> you know what I mean? So youth definitely is in there. You know, I am, I am part, and I actually think the new generation has it even more than I do, right? Like I'm what they call like a millennial, right? I'm dead center. And like, I think I'm right in the middle of like what a millennial is. Um, you know, and we were like this generation. Everyone was like, these kids are crazy. They're this, they're whatever it is. We grew up with seeing the the rise of the internet, the rise, the creation of social media and everything. These new kids, it's like, they don't know a world without it, right? So I feel like being able to write our own rules and did come with seeing people essentially create themselves out of nothing and building personal brands became as, as important as major brands. And now all of a sudden you have someone from anywhere in the world that can become, carve their own path, become who they want to be. And it's it's really democratized success in, in that sense. I think that may have helped for sure. I was very early to the to social media. Like I was, when I was doing these all age club events, like, I mean, I had Friendster, right? And then I was on MySpace. I, I came up with this, like, I was like, wait, if this is the social standard of what success and fame is, how do you just, instead of trying to build it, why don't you just find figure out a way to manipulate it, right? Like, and I realized, I was like, these were, they were called friends at the time. They weren't even followers. There was, it's similar. I think Facebook's still like that, but they still have followers. But I was like, if people are MySpace famous, MySpace successful, and the threshold was like 10,000 people, right? I have a million followers on Instagram now, but back then it was 10,000 people. I just sat up all night and just added whatever, how many thousand people I had to do to get to 10,000. And I was just like, if this internet 
social media thing becomes like the standard, I got to figure out now how to focus on that and marketing more than anything. I did through that definitely probably neglect more monetary opportunities that other people did. And that's why there are a lot of people out there my age who have a lot more money than I am and always will. But ultimately, like I focused on marketing, building a brand. I was like, if I build Jeremy Fall before I build the career aspect, then at least I can do whatever I want versus trying to, you know, achieve success in this thing. That way I can carve my own path. But at the same time, Jeremy Fall, it wasn't like you were just it wasn't like the Jeremy Fall brand was empty and then you filled it up with followers and tweets and quotes and inspirational quotes and stuff like that. Like you had a skill set. You were 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 building bars, then nightclubs, then restaurants, and then changing the concept of what a restaurant brand is to include like art and creativity and so on. Uh so in terms of like, let's say advice you would give to someone now about building a personal brand, it's not like create something out of nothing. You had to create, a brand couldn't be a lie. You had to have something backing it. Yes and no. I mean, to a certain extent, like, and I appreciate that you're very generous to the compliments, but ultimately, I think that I was definitely the last one in my circle and around people that figured out what they wanted to do when they grew up. Right. I'm still, I still have one of my biggest missions and everything I do is reimagining the everyday, fucking the status quo, just really being in this, this like, you can be whatever you want. You know, like I had no culinary training, but I was like, you know what? I'm open restaurants. I'm going to learn. If you, if you put me on a show right now competing on a technique against chefs, I would get my ass handed to me. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, that's not what I do. Like I came up with the ideas. I have a palette. Like I'm creative. I did restaurants, but then people were like, started calling me a celebrity chef. And I was like, cool, whatever. I struggled in the beginning because I had, you know, a lot of creatives struggle with defining themselves. It's like, if you ask, you know, any creative that was known for being a musician, they're going to tell you they're not a musician because they're all these other things. So I think that's the thing that everyone shares. But for me, it was like, I, it was a long time. Like there were so many people that just had no idea what I did for a living. And like, cause I had the following, I had the connections. And then, you know, I started doing bars and people like, oh, he's a club promoter. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, like they started putting these buckets. And then it wasn't until like I was 26, 2016, you know, that I was, and I know that's still young, but considering that by the time I was 26, I had been in nightlife for actually 10 years because I started when I was 16 working in nightclubs mm -hmm. that I, started getting this shape of what I was. I was a restaurateur because even with the nightlife, like there is no term like nightclub impresario. Like it's just these weird things, right? So I became a restaurateur and people labeled me as a chef and or whatever it is. And then like that was a long time. Like I still think that how you say the Jeremy Fall brand was probably less defined before that. And and it 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 started with not really anything before I was able to build it. Like now am I an author? Like, yeah, you can add that to my thing because I did a book. But do you know what I mean? It's 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 more like projects that have accumulated and people will define and add to my title. But I I made it so that I could do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. I still struggle with it today. I think now I'm just I'm comfortable with just being mean. Like I, you know, when every time I'm going to do an interview, they're going to be like, "What title do you want under your name?" And it's always going to make me cringe. So I'm always telling them like, "Go wherever you want," because I don't know what to tell you. You know, and they're like, okay, well, we'll just put Jeff or we'll put a restaurant. I'm like, that's fine. That's what people need that 
that's cool. But it's, you know, I st- I, I'm starting less, I'm starting to give a shit less and less. But that's recent. That's very recent. It, it's probably recent because, like you said, like now you have a book, now you have NFT collections, and now you have, uh, you know, you've been known for the restaurants and your creative approach to that. So you have the confidence that you're bringing into the brand. You know, I bet you feel, you know, you, t- you talk in the book about the chef thing and how you were asked to go on, you know, the Food Network and cook some of your, the, the dishes from Nighthawk and you felt imposter syndrome. I bet you don't feel imposter syndrome as much. I don't think it ever goes away, but I bet you don't feel as much right now. No, I don't as much right now. That is very true. I actually wrote a short essay about it. Like about it's called Do You Know Who I Am? And it was about like this thing in Hollywood and like not knowing who you are and stuff. This is the catchy title. Um, but but like if I look, if yeah. I look at you, right? Some people are gonna call you writer. Your website says entrepreneur and angel investor. Your Wikipedia says hedge fund manager, podcaster. You know, yeah, I can't describe what I do either. Like people say, what do you do for a living? There's no there's no words for it. Yeah, exactly. And it's like you know, like to someone who is a hedge fund manager, like I might be your biggest nightmare because it's like putting capital behind some, or I might be the biggest breath of fresh air because you're investing in a person and that person is going to do what they do, right? But it's like, if you look at things in a black and white nature or like how VCs look at things a lot of times and it's just like quantifying growth and, and obsessing risk, like, you know, it's in that area I've really noticed throughout my career, there are times where I've conflicted because I live in a reality that I've created. And a lot of times the traditional systems don't understand that reality. You know, I, I had this really amazing deal with one of the most successful people in the world. And last about six months, we tried to get through it and we, we couldn't figure it out because, and not because there was anything wrong. Like we were both, everything was, was great and mutual and everything. It just was, you know, I come from a world where I was like, if I want to be on TV and do a show or if I want to do this, it doesn't necessarily need to flow through this entity because it's going to help indirectly. And then they're used to, if you're a founder and you do, like it's not the entertainment, the Hollywood, none of that stuff is. If you're a founder, you're eating Doritos on the couch until this thing gets to a billion dollars and you sell it and then whatever. But I was like, I have different expenses than that. So anyway, I might be going on a tangent, but all that to say, you know, it's interesting to talk to someone like you because it sounds like you understand both sides of the equation. Uh, definitely, because I've been both on, let's say, the financial side and the very creative side. And and also, to my de- something you said earlier resonates with me, which is that you could have done things like your peers and made potentially much more money, but instead you pursued the things you love. So there, I would go years at a time not doing the things that would maybe create the optimal amount of money, but you know, you only live once and you have to, you know, sometimes make sacrifices and do the things you love or else your life's over. Are you a spreadsheet person? Like, would you? No. Okay, so are you a, you're like a believe in the founder, here's a check kind of guy? Well, I probably shouldn't say, uh, I shouldn't say it's that easy, but. Yeah, it's not that easy. It's more like, I even when I invest, I have to invest in things that I think this is exciting and this is big and there's a potential for like huge return. But but I'm not necessarily the type of person who enjoys investing. That's why, for me, investing is supposed to fuel the rest of my life. So I want it to be rare and infrequent. So it has to be special. So I have to be good at it. So it's as rare as possible. That's really interesting. Like if you have a gun with 10 bullets, 
when you shoot those bullets, you got to make sure you kill someone. So that's a very. I mean the the whole thing is is like you you go after what like a hundred and hope that like ten do okay and two kill it. Like it's kind of that thing. It's just a, it's a numbers game, right? It's a numbers game, but I really want as I I like that's that's what they say about VCs is that only one out of ten needs to be a winner or two out of ten. But I really aim for a ten out of ten. <laughs> yeah, like right. I don't I. And I don't succeed in that, but that's what I, I really, really work hard to to aim for. Or because I know I'm not gonna do a lot. Like a lot of VCs will just spread it around. I don't I'm very, very I don't do a lot of stocks at all. I'm just very focused on making sure I can enjoy other parts of my life. Yeah. And that's interesting. You know, like like I own a a comedy stand-up comedy club for a while and I pursued stand-up comedy for years and years. That's not something a VC should do. If they want to be a successful VC, well, why not? No, I agree with you that why not. But if they're going to be a top venture capitalist uh, and and you know invest in the next Uber, probably they're not going to spend a lot of time hanging out in comedy clubs, which is what I did for many years. You know, so it's all there's give and take, there's sacrifice, and whether that shows up in a successful brand or changes your career in different ways, it almost doesn't matter to me. I kind of go. I, I'm like you. I think I sort of go where the compass is pointing. At that moment, yeah, no, that's that's you know it's interesting, yeah. And Mark Cuban passed on Uber, so it's you know you wouldn't be the only, you wouldn't be the only one, but no, that, that's interesting. I think you know I think one of the biggest problems in fundraising is that it's too celebrated as a success. So yeah, you're people right. are like, congratulations, we raised hundred thirty million. To me, like that's a fucking liability. Like a hundred, I can't sleep at night yeah. if I owe someone a thousand dollars, a hundred dollars. Like, let alone. 130 million. I think at that point you can't even quantify because it's so much money, but it's too celebrated. And I think that like people are like, we haven't even launched yet, but congrats, champagne bottles. We raised all this money. It's like, okay, like that's great. But, you know, I have more respect for like the self made, you know, like the founder Spanx. She sold with 100% of her equity. Like you don't need to raise money. Yeah. Yeah. And she was, I mean, she's been on the podcast, Sarah Blakely. Mm -hmm. I, I know her and her husband. And, she was a hustler and she wasn't hustling with venture capitalists. She was hustling with, you know, Neiman Marcus and, and manufacturers and figuring out like you, she wasn't a fashion designer, but she made one of the most popular fashion items on the planet. So, you know, that's like grit and hustle. And I always think the best way to be an entrepreneurial success is just to simply be profitable day one, which is not as hard as people think. I mean, sure, you 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 put up some upfront costs and and you have to have a sense of how you're going to make that money back. But you're right. If there was one time I raised money and the next morning I woke up like scared to death, like anxious because I wasn't a hundred percent confident in the idea. And so I literally just returned the money and shut down the idea just because I didn't at that moment, I didn't think it would succeed and that takes that takes a lot of intelligence though to do that and be able to identify you know certain things like it's better than doing that than a lot of people would have just tried cuz it's not their money you know i can't do that i can't do that and and i think this is somewhat related like this reminds me of your a lot in the book you discuss your anxiety and and i've had this all my life like since i was a kid like just super anxious all the time even at those moments when i'm happy like it's a as you know it's like a almost a biological thing or it is a biological thing and, you know, maybe you could talk about when you first realized this anxiety that you had was something you, you have to treat. Yeah, you know, I, I had anxiety my whole life. I didn't know what it actually was. So 
I didn't know I had to treat it. And then I found out I had anxiety in like my early 20s that I found anxiety disorder in my mid-20s just by like self-diagnosis, right? Like nothing professional. And then as I got, excuse me, to my early 30s, it just, it started becoming more and more crippling, right? So my whole thing with that is, you know, I, I really decided to work on it, I would say in my, well, when I was 30 or late, yeah, or about turn 30. So I would, you know, I used to drive. I get really anxious. I'd see a green light. I'd be panicked. That I would turn yellow. I saw yellow. I'd be panicked. Turn red. It was just constant shit. Was just thrown at me all the time. Anxiety, and you know when you when it's all you know. One, you don't realize the extent of it. You don't know what life can be without it. And then two, uh, it it just seems like the idea of rewiring your brain to live completely differently and think differently. It's a lot more intimidating than it sounds, right? And you don't know, well, you don't know, so you don't know what's on the other side. I hadn't also understood that, you know, my whole thing was I had fear. I'm going to lose my creativity. I'm going to lose my drive and lose everything. But then I found out that you just, you lose the spiral. You don't lose the anxious thoughts. I learned that through therapy and then through psychiatry. And then I decided to get medicated for it. But I was very anti-medication before. I was like, this is going to ruin my creativity. I'm going to lose my personality. I actually never felt more like myself after I got on medication. And, you know, I was lucky that my therapist, my psychiatrist were two people that weren't pushing me to, to medicate. They were, you know, at first they were like, I don't know if you even need it. And then as time passed, realized more and more that I needed it. Now I'm on a very high dose of Lexapro now, but, um, you know, I'm also six foot seven, right? So like, it makes sense. But um, I, you know, I would, I would, I was in the shower once. And there was something that was bothering me, like for the last week, and I was in the shower, and and I thought about, it, and I was just like, I thought about, it, and then I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And I realized in that moment, I was like, holy shit, there's like, like if you think of it, like I would go have the anxious thought, and then I would shoot down into a spiral. Now I just had the anxious thought, and it kind of just vanished in the back of my head, and that was the weirdest feeling because it was something like. That was bothering me every day. And that was the time where I think the medication started kicking in because it takes six weeks a lot of time for it to fully kick in. So from there, I was just like... Did you ever try like uh, Xanax or Klonopin instead of uh, Lexapro? Yeah, so I, 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 I had tried... Yes, Xanax is not something you take every day. But, but yes, I had. But Klonopin is like the daily... You can take Klonopin every day? Yeah. That sounds... But... Tense. But it's a very addictive drug. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I I had had Xanax before for like surgery and stuff like that. And like, it definitely helps. But I'm a lot, I'm 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 basically high, right? Lexapro doesn't make you high. It's just, it's like a supplement, you know, like the, like the way you take vitamin C. Like you don't feel the vitamin C, but it's just there working its thing in the background. Um, I have no problem taking Lexapro every day for the rest of my life. You know, there are a lot of these things with pharmaceuticals being addictive and whatnot. And obviously, that's like a very serious thing. Um, I think that taking a pill that helps your anxiety, that, you know, you essentially, and look, I'm not a doctor, so by no means am I, am I like pushing medication. I think it worked for me. Everyone has their own journey. I know people who can meditate. I wish I could meditate. I can't. Um, or I don't think I can as at this moment. But, but with that said, like, I, I, to me, if it helps... And it isn't detrimental. If the positive really outweighs the theoretical negative, then for me, it's worth it, right? It's just 
like, am I going to pop a Klonopin or Xanax every day? No, because that's a more dangerous. I shouldn't even know that Klonopin is something you could take daily, by the way. I just found this out right now with you. But like, that's <laughs> obviously like, it's not as recommended. Like, Lexapro is really like one of the, or Zoloft, or whatever, is one of the more mild ones, you could say, I guess. Is it even mild? You know, I don't know. Uh, like, I, I in 2010, I was both going broke or close to going broke and super anxious to the point where I couldn't function at all. Like I was just up all night, like the guy from a beautiful mind writing numbers down and trying to figure out if I was going to go broke or not. And my doctor prescribed clonopin and it was both the best and the worst thing because it like blocks anxious thoughts. Like you almost can't think an anxious thought. And so I was able to be productive again, but it's so addictive and it is long-term detrimental that you know, you have to be very careful. So, uh, you know, Lexapro is, is definitely a different family of drugs. Are you still on Glockman? I'm still weaning off of, I mean, I basically wow. stopped my anxiety at a very high dose in 2010, and it's taken like a decade or more to wean off from it. Wow. Like, it's dangerous to wean, to get off it too fast. At least that's what I had experienced was when I tried to get off too fast, it's almost worse than never having, it is definitely worse than never having had had taken it. That's what I've heard. Like you could have seizures, all thing. Yeah. Wow. So, so, but and also there's there's there's, there's long term like side effects that we'll see if I experience. But it's it's not it's not a it shouldn't be a long term solution for anybody. I think you know again not being a doctor as well, but it it was a very sh good short term solution. I'll say that. But long term, it's not. Ten years is having to wait off. That's. I mean, I applaud you for that. That's that's courageous to wait off over that long. No matter how small I get the dosage, like every six months, I kind of cut the dosage in half. No matter how small I get it, if I ever try to just zero it, I start getting all the side effects immediately. So it's 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 horrible. Wow, wow. And I've never, I haven't really talked about it actually. So it's you know, it's it's and I can see this too. Like I'm after this podcast, I'm meeting my daughter who's about to graduate college. And she seems to have inherited my anxiety. And she's a very happy person, except when I can see those moments of anxiety happen. And it's like almost, you know, a biological thing. Or it, again, it, it probably is a biological thing because she, she inherited exactly what she, what I had. So no, ab ab absolutely. I mean, I mean, look, there's I don't know if you have an addictive personality as well, but obviously that plays a factor too. With I mean, I have one. It's in my genes. Um, so, so, I mean, that also always got to be careful of like any sort of things like that, you know, just, uh, have you tried microdosing mushrooms? I haven't. And a lot of people recommend that to me. Um, one friend of mine as, as who's been on this podcast many times has totally recommended it in every possible yes. way. And I just, and you know, people, many, you know, well-known people have publicly, Tim Ferriss is a big advocate of microdosing. A lot of people are, are, are well-known advocates of microdosing and I, I should try that. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of it. I I'm someone who had a cannabis edible when I was like 21 and almost went to the hospital because I had a meltdown. So never touched weed or anything. I'm very sensitive to those kinds of things, and I can microdose mushrooms. So like that's when you know it's like you know um, that you like, do it every it, day for me. It works. No, but I I could the the thing I have says every two or three days, but um, I absolutely could every day. There's it doesn't slow down my ability function. To be honest, my tolerance is very high because I'm on Lexapro. So it 
I know it like it like reduces the effect the effect of it. There's so necessary to reduce the effect of it, but it's um it yeah it, it but it does work though, and it's in the back of your head. It's not like you take it and then you're like in like Xanax, like you feel it hit right, but mushrooms are just kind of like in the back of your head like it's kind of like lexpro in the sense that like you, you don't feel high from it but it's just there doing its job from their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I'm curious, like, how much of the anxiety you think might also be related to your choice of what to do in life? Like, being yeah. involved in the nightlife. And, like, you mentioned one of your early ventures, the... Um, King Eddie Saloon, the the downtown LA uh, bar that that you Skid Row, yeah, yeah, that you reopened. That sounded like a pretty stressful experience. You mentioned early on in that um, two people who you worked with actually committed suicide. Like what what was happening? Yeah, I mean, you know, the nightlife world can be very depressing. Like bars, I mean, it's late hours, it's alcohol. Like you talk, you know, I actually grew up right off of Skid Row, so. I had gone back there. It was very close to where I grew up, this bar, like very like blocks away, right? Mm. So it was cool. I was like, oh, I'm back where I was. And then I was kind of like, this is like, this is shit, dude. Like this, it's it's sad. It's, you know, I came back, I restored the bar. People were writing rest in peace, Jeremy Fall on the walls. Like, by the way, I just I just want to interrupt there. R.I.P. Jeremy um Fall. That would be a great name for a restaurant, too. <laughs> As soon as I, mean, I saw that in the book, I thought, huh, he should, I wonder why, if, if, he, if he thought about making that the name of the restaurant and leaving that graffiti up. I mean, there's a lot of people, I'm sure, that dislike me out there that would go to that place. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it, was, it was, I think it was definitely very hard on the psyche. You know, a lot of these, again, late shifts, like, it's very dark, right? It's dark, drinking, people are depressed. Like, there's a lot of these, like, bars, these local dive bars, especially that people, um, that, that I think it really rubs off on you, right? Like from the second you like park your car and walk down the street and like, it's just, it was a very sad environment. Yeah. Two of the employees committed suicide very closely apart. Um, and then, you know, my business partner, Jared commutes, committed suicide years later, we weren't partners anymore, but a few years ago committed suicide. Um, you know, it's a world that is that will really eat you alive. Like the, even in restaurants. Like, I mean, you know, I've I have been on the cover of magazines. I've been, you know, again at Mon, at Mon TV and all these things. And regardless, and even like with the rise of the celebrity chef, the 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 options are really praise or you're treated like absolute shit. Right? Unfortunately, you're treated like shit 
more often than not, right? And that's something I never tolerated in any of my places, especially now with my with my staff. Like I would I would take someone treating me like shit over anyone else, really, that's ever worked for me. But there's still this idea that you're a servant. I am there. I'm paying. You're here to serve me. I'm the only person that matters in this restaurant. I know better than you. If this is not good, this dish is not good. It's not that it's not to my liking. It's just bad. I like there's a lot of this mentality that's like weighs you down, and especially in like high intensity environment where you're moving around and like there's a high. Like I can't name a lot of people that leave a restaurant shift or a bar shift and aren't completely awake when they leave, right? This mm. adrenaline, like so. It takes a lot of you. You know, you do work weird hours when you're asleep. People are awake and vice versa. And like, you know, you don't have weekends. Weekends are your busy time. You know, it's just like, it's a very weird way of living. It's very passion driven, right? And I'm talking about like when this is your career, not when you're a wealthy attorney and you have a restaurant as an investment. I don't know why you never know this restaurant. But, um, you know, as you have that as a, you know, as like a, a hobby or a passion, like that's different. When it's your career, and no matter what side of it you are, and obviously people tend to, you know, like I said, the praising side tends to increase. Like if you're on TV and stuff, that's just like human nature. But, um, but it's just, it's a very exhausting, you know, career. Like I have friends of mine, I was talking to a friend of mine who's like a very known chef and he was just like, you know, I'm going to be on the road until I'm fucking 70, like 75, like checking on the restaurants, working the line. And it's like, even when you're successful in just straight culinary, in terms of just straight restaurants, like there's not enough money. There's money where you can live well, but there's not enough money that you can put away some massive retirement to then be able to stop early, right? And retire. That's why all these chefs go for a lot of TV consumer package. Like products are, are you know, a great revenue stream. Like that's what a lot of them end up going to that because you become more and you go into the branding business and not the restaurant business anymore. You know, it's a different world. So, so that's what I mean is that could that up the chances of an anxiety disorder oh, yeah. triggering being in that sort of business, as opposed to, let's say being a lawyer where of course that's a big anxious sort of business, but there's a path, there's a well-known, a well-trodden path. You work a lot of hours, you take out a lot of cases, you make partner, and then you ease into retirement. Yeah, I think everyone in the business has had a moment where they've done something that's not themselves. Like there is a time where I was throwing pans and knives at my like, and I've and it made its way across to the other um to the other restaurants because every general manager messaged me and was like, like, are you okay? Cause like the, it wasn't something that I would do. Like I've 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 always been pretty strict and I like things done a certain way, but I'm like, I've never been like one to scream, one to throw shit. Like that's just not the way I've done things ever. And it was just like a really specific situation where I just lost my mind in, uh, this was before I was Medicaid too, but lost my mind because I had asked for things done multiple times. It was really important. And essentially some of the team members were rude to one of my other employees, like extremely rude. And then when I came in, they were taking selfies instead of like working like their own asses. Like it was like, it was like an extreme case, right? Like, and I just like lost my shit. I started yelling and throwing shit. No HR complaint because it was so unlikely. No one even, no one even filed anything. It was just like shit for Jeremy to do that. Like we fucked up badly, you know? So, you know, one thing that's really fascinating with what you do is that with your personal brand, it's not like 
just being a chef. Like take Wolfgang Puck. We know he's a chef. We know he's a chef more than we know he's a restaurateur. Like he's a chef's chef. And, you know, so he brands that in various ways. Could sell cookbooks, could sell products, could sell sauce, whatever. And, uh, but you've taken that brand in a different direction, which is, it's almost like food and being, having a restaurant is an outlet for your creativity. Oh, but here's another outlet doing NFTs. Here's another outlet. Like, what, what is this record label deal you just, you just worked on? Yeah, so it's funny because all of it has a food through line, whether it was obvious or not. So the record label, you know, working, we actually, it's called Probably Label. I, it's, so I co-own the record label with Warner Records. And our last project is we dropped a pizza concept pop-up with Adidas called Probably Pizza. And it was in New York and we did branded boxes. Everything was collected. It's very much in the collector mentality, uh, you know, situation. But I, I basically, I use food as a platform for creativity, for conversation. And, and so it's something universal everyone eats. So for me, it's, I'm going to use this, um, to do whatever I want, really. Right. And from there, kind of rewrite the rules. Like my last restaurant mixtape was a collaboration. It was like my mixtape, like how a musician would do it in restaurant form. I had dishes that featured artists that I'd collaborate on. You know, I had Quincy Jones, a collaborator, Vic Mensa, Jaden, Jaden, you know, Jaden Smith at the time, Brandon Boyd from Incubus, Serge Tankyon from System of a Down. Like I took a bunch of different people together that you wouldn't expect. And they all did things that would normally do. A lot of them sketched, drew, paint. Serge did like a statue of a, a recycled Yamaha keyboard into a lamp. And I, it was, when you walked in, the way I'm describing it is not what you would expect. You expect like this, like all this random shit, but we integrated to the decor where it was like you're peeling layers to an onion. You'd be eating and be like, what is that? Wait, what's that? Quincy Jones, like the musician. And then you walk around, it's like, it would create conversation with um, the servers. It was really layering the experience as much as possible. Um, and I like to do things like that that are different. You know, a lot of things have not necessarily been successful or haven't been understood or people... But they've always moved it forward. I remember there was this, this. I think it was the Hollywood Reporter that said that my larkish sensibility was both, a, that some people found it grating and some people found it like, it was, there's was some like really hilarious lingo. Uh, it was like some people find it like endearing and some find it grating or something like that. But, uh, it but was it's just, interesting to even do collaborations with like Quincy Jones in a uh, kind of a restaurant type of, atmosphere like what, what what was that collaboration or what 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 was like a specific example of one of these collaborations well yeah so quincy actually did a sketch like a drawing that was like hung up on the wall it was like pretty simple it's a cool sketch um you know i i i did a lot of they all did something different right that they a lot of it was art though that we'd use as decor did anyone suggest a recipe yeah, yeah, I had some artists that were Toki Monster uh, actually had a Korean collaboration influence on one of the dishes. Um, so yeah, so I had like actual features on the dishes, which was cool. Like, like I want, I would people are like, oh, I don't know how to cook. I'm like, I don't care. Give me ideas. Like that's like we. This the whole point is to to just kind of fuck around. But it's funny because for Nighthawk, when I first opened it, I got shit on. I got like praise and shit on. I got like I was getting like dubbed in Japanese and in like Vogue. Like and all these different things, but I got a lot of people that are like, is this or there's articles that are like, is this a restaurant? Is this a bar? I can't make up its mind. 
And I really realized, I was like, damn, the industry is really fucking narrow-minded. Like food is like, food is the industry that lacks the most innovation in all of culture. We're making flying cars and like music went from like to sets, cassettes to CDs to streaming and fashion evolves faster than it. It's just like, and food is, it's, it's the same shit over and over again. And like this was like, when I dropped Nighthawk, all of LA was kale salads, hamachi crudos, charred octopus. Every menu was the same. It was like, we have craft beer. We have an old fashioned with almonds. We have an old fashioned with walnuts. It was like the same shit every time. And I was like, cool, I'm going to drop carbs and I'm going to do spike cereal milk. I'm going to do breakfast for dinner. And then it got praised and shit on. The same week I got was like, I think it was LA Weekly that was like, this is what is this? This is ridiculous. Uh, Jeremy must be a pothead. This whole thing that was literally in this article, I got best restaurant in America the exact same week. And then I ran into the writer at an event and then she was like, oh, hey, like whatever, like, well, obviously. And then I was just, I like show the article up and I have two phones. So I show the article up and I show the other thing and then I just did answer it and that was it. And I was just like, I don't, I don't mind criticism. I don't mind. I actually enjoy it. I like, I love being proved wrong, proven wrong, sorry. Um, because it teaches me how much I have to learn. And I'm stubborn in a lot of ways, but when it comes to learning and growth, like I love to be proven wrong. Um, But I like when there's backing and educated explanations and it's not just pointing at a business because you didn't like it or it wasn't, you know, or it wasn't what you expected. And then, you have this platform to bash businesses when it's already hard enough. And I was lucky to be on the good side of it, the side that got pressed, the side that I had a fault. I have a fault in everything. I look at it for the people that don't and start in such a hard industry. And that takes a hit. Like people don't realize how Yelp reviews, like how much that affects restaurants. When there's a bad Yelp review, the entire restaurant is talking about it. All the employees are like, did you see that one star? Like it really fucks with us like more than people realize you know so you grow thicker skin over time but you know i think that 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 stuff always upset me definitely because you know i would would take it personally when it was like not constructive yeah and you know the interesting thing though with nighthawk is that and and this is relates to what you said earlier that the rest we can have flying cars but the restaurant industry is like the same old thing that also leaves room for a lot of innovation which is what you did like the, the concept of you have this concept in the book, which I like a lot, and I've called it something else in the past, but you call it paper clipping. The idea of taking two good ideas and combining them to create a perhaps better idea or at least interesting attempt. I, I call it idea sex, where you take mm-hmm. take breakfast food and put it at dinner, or let's you know take uh, a, a sushi and put it inside a burrito and it's a sushi rito or whatever. And yeah. I like how you ran with that in the food space and and it gives you kind of this license for creativity that that is unique and and welcome in the in the food industry yeah you know it's it's so it's welcome there's so i always was careful to not get into the hot cheeto covered donut shit like that was just like the the unnecessary we're going to force this for viral content like like it was a thing in the beginning like now i'm kind of like okay we don't have to do that you know and i, I actually was part of starting the crazy cereal trend. Like after we launched it, we're like, we were getting knocked off all over the world. So, 
So I was a part of that problem to a certain extent, but not the same way. Like everything, we always made everything from scratch. We were always like, my chefs were all like very came from fine dining, right? Like that was always like the way we went. So it was different whether you realize it was subtle, you know. So, so yeah, that you know, to me, I think innovation doesn't have to be completely reinventing the wheel. You know, I think where it's not welcome in food, contrary to popular belief, is like people self-proclaimed foodies, as much as I hate that word, all those people, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I went to this restaurant. They had like this crazy dish, et cetera. I had the chicken and the Caesar salad. Like it's a lot of times you have to have those to make it's It's your, it's singles for music, right? It's like you have the commercial radio hit and then you can do the stuff you actually want to release, right? But it, you know, I you always need to have those hits, like you always do. And the problem is, it's such an expensive endeavor. Like, if a musician wants to do this, like, very dark album, like Brian Jones from the Stones did like a Moroccan album that like was completely unsuccessful. But who cares? Because he could and he could do it, right? Like, I can't. I'm not in a position where I can go and do some weird ass restaurant like today. Sign a lease. It's going to cost twenty to thirty thousand dollars a month in Los Angeles. Put people's jobs on the line. Run a forty, fifty thousand dollar a month payroll. And I, you just, you just can't. It's too capital intensive before you even open the doors, right? And the margins are very low. Like I always tell people this: I'm like, food does not cost what it should. I know the numbers. And sometimes people are like, "Wow, this place is expensive." And I'm like, "It sure it is, but I'm telling you what it costs." And it's not, they're not, you know, it's not like they're raking in millions of dollars in profit. Like by the time you get food, people don't realize they're like, oh, well, I don't understand. Like I can buy a bun, I can buy this, you know, and make it at home. It's like, well, first of all, you should do that. But second of all, um, there's so much overhead, line cooks, chefs, like before it gets to your plate, there's so much labor, so many things that go into it. And they're making it times two, 300 a day, right? When, it, when it's successful. So People like food does not cost what it should cost. You know, uh, and when I'm saying this, I'm saying this like from a restaurant experience, experience, right? I think that a lot of times people don't realize that. I think that food obviously is a means of survival and should not, and there should be options that are affordable. Like everyone needs to be able to eat, but you're on the, you're on this like in between where, you know, these, these two things need to coexist. And I think the standard of like what food should cost is too, uh, is to democratize for people to understand because they don't have context where they're like, I can get a bowl of pasta here and a bowl of pasta here. It should cost the same thing. It's like, it's very different, right? So there's so much context and lack of understanding of how a lot of these operations work. So that's where I disagree where food doesn't welcome that much innovation. It does if you're, you, James, are coming to my house. I'm like, I'm going to try this shit and like cook it. But if I were to try to commercialize it, like, you know, it's hard. And if I showed you the numbers as a angel investor, you you would be like, oh, fuck that. <laughs> like we're no, not I, trying this. I I I believe you. Like I've been in not in that industry like you have, obviously, but I've been I've looked into that industry and it is a very difficult business, which is why brand is so important. Cause uh you want have to want you have to have people want to go to your restaurant. Not just for the food, but for many reasons. They have the the more reasons they have for wanting to go to your restaurant, essentially the better it is for the for the business in a lot of ways. Not just pricing, but recurring revenues and so on. So it's a, it's a tough business. And yeah, it's very hard. It's you very know, hard. but again, that's why it's great how you've been able to take your your 
personal branding in this industry and now get the record label, do uh, something with CNN, whether or not it's profitable is not as important as the experience and building the brand, extending the story into all these other outlets. And that's really good advice for for people to observe and, and see how you worked with it. Um, I'm curious on on the one thing about the anxiety disorder that I'm always curious about is when do you know the difference between something's a disorder and something's just anxiety? Like again, you're in a very anxious type of business, the the nightlife, the the restaurant business. What you just described was almost an anxiety inducing kind of yeah having a discussion about pricing with customers. And <laughs> you know, that'll raise the anxiety of anybody. So how do you know when something goes from just in a lot of anxiety to disorder? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. I think I think it's when it starts having a negative impact on your overall life overall life outside the situations that directly give you anxiety, right? So to explain, if it's like, oh, I'm anxious because I'm figuring out prices, that's one thing. If it's I'm sitting at home on the couch. And have anxious, I feel anxious, and I'm not sure why. I think that's a disorder. I was feeling anxious for no reason. Mm. And then it was accentuated with reasons, right? So driving and thinking the light's gonna go yellow, there was really no, and I mean, sure, that's a reason, quote unquote, but there was no really direct correlation as to why I should be panicking if the light was being yellow, considering I've been driving for like 15 years, um, Jesus, 18 years, uh, 17. So there's no reason that I should be, you know, panicking about stuff like that or anxious. Like I would be anxious for no reason. Like I'd be like, why am I anxious? And I just, I wouldn't even notice it. People would be like, you okay? And I was like, yeah, why, why, why do you think I'm not okay? You know, it's like, it was a very weird thing. Like, you know, so yeah. And how was it affecting your relationships at the time? Oh my God, it was a disaster. Um, I shouldn't say it like that, like that dramatically. I had, I, it, it was tough for them. You know what I mean? Like, I definitely, especially I've been in relationships where the other party was anxious as well. So that's always a, a great combo. Um, but, you know, I think it's, I commend the people that were with me through all that. Like, I owe everyone who's with me, friends, you know, romantic relationships, family. Like, you know, looking back, I'm like, fuck, like, I, it, this is a lot. Like, person trying to build something because it's like blind confidence a little bit of insanity and like naivete to believe that you're you're literally can do these things better than anyone and like rewrite the rules for like an industry that's existed for centuries and you know there's definitely a lot of blind confidence and naivete i would say and then on top of that being anxious that things aren't going to go well and being so anxious that things do go well because there's no room for error and like that's a lot to be around. You know, that doesn't yeah. like scream like Netflix and chill. <laughs> and and did you feel like you wanted to write this book because you've gotten through the other side of it? Or is it sort of an ongoing uh, process of dealing with this, you know, anxiety? Even though you, you're taking the medication, you're going to the therapy, you know, do you, do you still find that the battle rages, although it's more moderated now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, like it's definitely gotten better now, um, mainly because of medication, right? I mean, I would say that that's definitely been the main thing. But 
I don't know. I really don't know. I think it's, I don't know. I actually don't know. Yeah, I think it's hard to know because you don't really know what other people are experiencing in terms of anxiety. So you don't yeah. know. And obviously, again, your business industry, life in general is anxiety inducing. But, yeah. and you don't know what you would be like if you weren't on the medication. So it's hard to, I agree, it's a hard question to answer. It definitely, uh, it definitely attributed to my success for sure. It definitely did. It still does, you know? Um, I decided to write the book because I was just at home and I was like, I got to get off of Instagram and like really having mental health issues. And I came back two months later after I did a post about it and tons of people responded. People I did, didn't follow me that I didn't follow up celebrities, a lot of men. And I was like, shit, like this was needed. And I guess it was during a time where in the pandemic, everyone was home and more focused on having the time to actually respond to these things. So it was like that day I decided to write the book and then that was it. I also can't imagine the sort of going into a pandemic with a bunch of restaurants uh, and having your brand around restaurants, every restaurant shut down. I mean, fortunately, there was a uh, the, these bailouts that helped restaurants and restaurant employees and so on. But I'm sure that was a stressful time. I sold my company at the end of 2019. I had no more restaurants by the time we hit the pandemic. So I had gone acquired in 2019. So I had no, I didn't have to deal with any of that. Oh, that's good. So, yeah. uh, and so right now, what's your, what are your main things that you're working on? Where, you know, where can people find the, the latest stuff that, that you're involved in? Instagram's probably the best thing. Honestly, Instagram, social media, that's where I post all my stuff. You know, I, I have this like vision. And actually, I haven't even talked about this yet, so it's kind of nice. But I have this vision to make organic cool. And like it has its place in the in the fitness and the health industry. But there are a lot of things like, you know, I started like taking a burger, for example. And I was like, if I break this up, like there's no reason a burger should be that unhealthy. It's meat, sure. Sauces do not need to, shouldn't be as unhealthy as they are, like at all. You know, bread can be fine. Like there's nothing in there that really should be that bad for you. You know, like it's just when you're cooking a, a patty and it's in its own juices and adding butter and oil and it's canola oil. Like there's like, just, you know, a lot of those things that are added are bad. So I started thinking about it. sauces is one of the big things. And, and I'm, you know, I don't know how much I'm supposed to say, but like, that's essentially what my new thing is, is just kind of recreating some of these hits, giving people that comfort food, but stuff that's not going to kill them. And like doing that as consumer packaged goods and et cetera. Well, what I like about this too, is this relates to your, some of your earliest memories on being involved in food. Like when you made a spicy ketchup when you were 12 years old. So that's one of those. That's one of the sauces. Okay, good. And you, I'm sure yeah. you have the, the Bloody Mary ketchup and uh, things like that. Yeah, it's good to connect your memories of your nostalgia with your reality, and that's what you're doing with this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'll I'll send you some stuff. I'd you know I'd love for you to try it and and see what it is. It's it's really cool. It's you know I'm I'm like very obsessed with punk culture and and kind of that. You know, punk culture very much mimics this lawless, break the rules, do whatever you want in like a non-cheesy way. But like, I really like that era, what that did to open the doors to a lot of, of different ideas and music. And there's something about that that I connect to. So that's a huge inspiration for all this food. I, I feel very much like you're inspired 
um, and this is just a gut impression, but not like pure punk, but punk when it merged with both rap and metal, like a Rage Against the Machine. So you even have a chapter Rage yes, Against the Hype yes, Machine. Yes. And earlier in this in this podcast, yeah. you asked, are we allowed to cuss? I'm sure you remember when the BBC asked Rage Against the Machine, hey, do a song, but don't curse. And the entire song, Zach De La Rocha was, was saying basically, you know, F you, I'll, uh, don't tell me, you know, I forget the exact words though. F you, I'll do what I want to. F you, I'll do what I want. That's the only verse in the entire song. Uh, it was, it, and actually, it was a very melodic song, so it was, it was good. But they're they're one of my favorite bands. So anyway, uh, Jeremy Fall, author of Falling Upwards. Thank you so much for coming on the the podcast. Your your books an inspiration. I, I really love what you're doing and love the way, directions you've taken the brand and I, and your book's really inspirational in a lot of different ways in terms of creativity, discussing mental illness and anxiety and discussing your specific businesses. It's very, very inspirational. I encourage people to, to check it out. Two of my daughters are either waitresses or promoters or have done a mixture of all these different things. Uh, I've owned a bar in, in my life when I owned a comedy club. It was also a bar. and it's completely different than owning a, a nightclub or a restaurant, but I have a sense of the anxiety of the business. And it's just an, an area that I've always been interested in. So I appreciate you writing about it and, and coming on the show and discussing, you know, the, the anxiety issues as well. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.